0: The Midday Report.
1: I'm Mandy Wiener. Keep listening as we round up the key stories affecting your world with interviews with newsmakers, in-depth analysis and eyewitness news reporters on the ground. The
0: Midday Report.
1: We do start in court, though. Eight South African Police Service VIP Protection Unit members, they were filmed beating up people on the side of the N1 highway. They've been applying for bail. The big issue there now is the credibility of the video. And this was always going to happen, the integrity of the video, because if they can't find the person who actually filmed the video, then the chain of evidence uh, is in concern. So let's speak to Tobiso Goba, EWN reporter who was in court for us. Tobiso, good afternoon to you. Thank you for your time today. Tell us what's happened in court and what the issue is around this video.
2: Good afternoon, Mandy. Yes, as you said that um, the, the the main contention of the issue, uh, especially from the defence lawyers, is that the video doesn't pass you know the, a data assessment test in terms of the, we, we do not know whether this video that is in the position of the prosecutor is the original video. So we also do not know whether it hasn't been unaltered un- or edited, for, for a matter of fact. And that is because, Mandy, that the motorist um, who took that video has um, has not made himself available to the state. So the motorist who took that video, we do know that he sent it to a prominent um, uh, social media person who posted it on Facebook, and it went viral, and this is why we're here now. So now the... The defense lawyers have argued that, you know, until that person who took the video can actually come forward, then this video cannot be used as evidence. Now, Mandy, I can tell you that this video um, was supposed to be played in court. Um, and because this video was supposed to be played in court, um, the, those eight men had to unmask so that, you know, the, maybe the magistrate can actually see who is actually responsible for what and Uh, and what role they played in that incident. However, um, the defense lawyers were actually successful in um, objecting to that video not being played uh, based on those um, arguments that were raised about the validity and authenticity of it.
1: Uh, So to be so I just want to try and get clarity on one point here because I'm a bit confused so initially reports suggested that the person who took the video was being sent threatening messages and they needed to work out who was sending these messages but if the person who took the video hasn't been identified yet how do they know that that person is getting threatening messages or have I misunderstood it?
2: Well, you've misunderstood it a little bit, uh, Mandy. So the person who took the video was a motorist. So that person was driving behind uh, that VIP motorcade and was in their car. So I think upon realizing that person, upon realizing what they have, uh, taking a video off, obviously, and the scale of it and the magnitude of it, they, um, they sent that video anonymously to, to, uh, to someone uh, who has a very prominent um, social media profile. And that person uploaded it on their personal social media. So it's the person who uploaded it on their personal social media that has been receiving those, those threatening messages. It is not the motorist who
1: initially ah, took the okay. video on the highway. Got it. Okay, so judgment has been reserved. What happens now? Do they obviously remain in custody, these VIP protection officers?
2: Yes, it is, Mandy. They do remain in custody. I understand they are being kept at the sensing, uh Police Station. So we, we are expecting judgment on uh, next day, next Tuesday. I will have to say that, Mandy, these are Schedule 1 offences. So there is a, the the onus um, to prove that why these men shouldn't be released on bail is on the state. So um, yes, we are expecting um, judgment, uh, a bail decision from the magistrates next Tuesday. Uh,
1: to be so, just one last thing before I let you go: Do we finally have clarity on this issue around whether or not the deputy president was actually in the motorcade and if he was aware of what was going on?
2: Well, what we do know, Mandy, is that on Monday, accused number one. You know, he testified in court. You know, he did that old thing, uh, you know, saying that, you know, even the magistrate said, you know, whatever you are saying here has to be the truth. Otherwise, you'll be fined, uh, you know, guilty of perjury. So when he was uh, going through his testimony, he said, "Paul Mashatile was present in that nine-car convoy. So it was a convoy meant it was going to Midrand. It was transporting the deputy president to Midrand however um there was this blue vw polo that was giving them issues and then two of the vip cars from that nine car convoy stayed behind and that's when we uh, that's when obviously the alleged assault happened so paul mashadile was present according to the testimony of accused number 1 paul mashadile was present in that nine car convoy however he wasn't present in those two cars in those two vip cars that stayed behind for the alleged
3: assault
1: Tabiso, thank you very much. Uh, Tabiso Goba, EWN reporter, speaking to us there uh, from court where those eight VIP protection officers have appeared. The integrity of that video, that is now in question. They have to show the chain of evidence. They have to show the video wasn't edited. We've seen this often in trials before, and this is going to be a key area of contestation now.
0: The Midday Report
1: Let's get a quick update now on the Senzo Miiwa trial that's continuing again today. We've been following it all week. A neighbour testifying today in Tavi Singh Mokete giving a version of the events on the night that the Bafana Bafana captain was killed. Noko Mtambo, EWN reporter, joining us again. Noko good afternoon. Uh, What kind of testimony are we seeing today from this particular neighbour? Good afternoon,
4: Mandy. So we continue with a cross examination of Ntanseri Mokiti, who's one of the Kumalo neighbors, and of course, She at the time was sitting in a car outside um, on the street when she heard two shots being fired uh, and three men running from the direction of the Kumalo house, but not necessarily saying that they were in that house, or at least not that they ran from the house, but um, that's what she's told us so far. So what we have today is the defense counsel for all of the accused now cross-examining her. We've got advocate Zandil Mshololo, who's posing a number of questions about the initial statement, witness statement, that she gave to police in 2014, and just trying to point out some of the contradictions compared to what she's told the court today, specifically Mandy, um, in the witness statement that she made in 2014, she didn't give a a thorough description of the three men that she saw running past the car that she was sitting in. But in court yesterday, she was able to give a lot more detail, specifically uh, the fact that one of the men had dreadlocks. One was in a hoodie, and that matches, from what we know now, common cause, um, is, is that it matches the description of the two alleged intruders that Zandi Kumalo had described to the court. So the question then that was posed to her why she wasn't able to tell police in 2014 the very same description that she's told the courts today. And her response simply was that she was never asked the question by police in 2014 to give a thorough description, but she was asked in court yesterday exactly what these men uh, may have looked like. She, didn't, she wasn't able to see the face, Mandy, and therefore can't point them out exactly, but that's the description. The other point... Um, point of discrepancy that Advocate Mthololo is trying to, to, to point out is the issue about uh, whether or not there, there was a car that was parked outside, what the what the colour of uh, the the, these intrud- the alleged intruders slash the two runners were wearing and whether she's able to give any more uh, info about that and she hasn't been able to give any more info. Right. So Mandy, that's where we are now with the cross-examination
1: by Advocate Zandi
5: Limshololo.
1: Nokukanya, thank you. Nokukanya Mtambo, EWN reporter in court for us, giving us an update there on the Senzo Mchima trial. The midday
0: report.
1: So, an exclusive story on uh, Business 24 today uh, about a pledge that has been signed by 115 CEOs of top companies in South Africa. And they've pledged to assist the government with technical expertise, with funding, committing them to form partnerships with a range of stakeholders to assist the country. The the aim is to reverse the current trage- trajectory of the country and reset it on a path for growth. And we speak so often about how important it is to have public-private partnerships in South Africa. How there needs to be this uh, responsible private sector, corporate citizens stepping up to assist. So now we're seeing 115 C of south africa's top companies doing that it's not anything new we have seen in the past this uh, cooperation uh, between the private sector as well and somebody who has very much been a part of that is martin kingston who is the b4sa chairperson martin thank you for making time to speak to us today good to have you on the show
6: afternoon mandy and very good to speak to you and your listeners
1: How important is this pledge that we are now seeing being signed by 115 CEOs? Is it significant when you look at the the NECOM model that has been happening already, the National Energy Crisis Committee? There has been collaboration between the private sector and government. So, how significant is this new development?
6: Well, I think it's very significant. I think it's a manifestation of the level of both uh, patriotism and commitment on the one hand and concern on the other hand that's felt by almost every single CEO of companies, large and small in South Africa. It's building, as you say, on the work that we're already doing as B4SA, uh, focusing on energy, that's through the National Energy Crisis Committee. Uh, logistics, we're forming uh, the National Logistics Crisis Committee as a country uh, and crime and corruption. Uh, we've got uh, teams that have been mobilized, uh, working alongside government in all of those three areas. Uh, but it's clear that we need to do more. And this is a, a very clear demonstration of the skills, resources, uh, as I said, commitments that can be harnessed, the experience that can be mobilized, both to work on the business side, but also I have to say to put at the disposal of the state, because we need to make sure that we've got the requisite capacity uh, to address what are very fundamental constraints if we're going to be able to deal with the uh, challenges that we've got in terms of very low economic growth uh, and the need, of course, to stimulate and create investment, which leads to the employment that is absolutely essential for the country.
1: The pledge states that uh, as South African business leaders, we firmly believe in the immense potential of our country. We committed to building it, have come together to address the current challenges. Um, And they speak about strategic partnerships. How do they ensure that this isn't just symbolic, that there are strategic partnerships? And and what does this look like in practice?
6: Well, uh, I think perhaps the first thing I should uh, refer us to, Mandy, is the work that we did, obviously, Uh, with the government in the context of the vaccination rollout and before that, uh, dealing with the pandemic, uh, which it was a strategic partnership. The private sector played a very important role in underpinning uh, the work of government. In this particular case, the National Energy Crisis Committee was announced in August of last year. Uh, We were asked by government, uh, A, whether we could provide skills and expertise. Uh, We formed the Resource Mobilization Fund. We raised 100 million rand. We've used that to procure... Uh, Very important technical expertise that they require, project management skills, uh, legal support, uh, modeling and tariff expertise, uh, communication support so that we can actually uh, ensure that they've got the skills at their disposal. Uh, That's within Necom. At the same time, there are 10 work streams up and running. Six of them we are directly participating in as business, having subject matter experts on our side, drawn from many of the companies that have signed the pledge. But we can do more. We're going to do the same thing, obviously, uh, in logistics, uh, and we're going to do the same thing in crime and corruption at all times, as I said, respecting the integrity of the state and the fact that we need to stay as business within our lane. But it doesn't mean that we can't be strong And committed partners. And that's not just about putting words on a piece of paper, it's about putting the skills, expertise, uh, and resources, as I said, at the disposal of these absolutely Mm. fundamental challenges.
1: And Martin, in your experience uh, through your um, collaboration with B4SA, how receptive is government to the involvement of, of the private sector?
6: Well, they acknowledge that the private sector is an absolutely key driver of the economy. We account for some 88% of all the jobs, formally and informally, in the economy. Uh, we pay a very significant amount of the taxes that is necessary. Uh, so we're a critical partner in every shape, size, and form. But putting it into practice, as we were discussing earlier on, is the key. And thus far, I have to say, uh, we've met with a high level of encouragement and support from our counterparties within government.
1: Martin, thank you so much. Uh, Martin Kingston, the B4SA chairperson, speaking to us there about this pledge that has been signed by 115 South African CEOs of top companies. I'm a big advocate of the involvement of the private sector, public-private partnerships. I think that as... As uh, we always hear from the gift of the givers, Imtia Suleiman, who always says you can't have 7 million South Africans responsible for 60 million South Africans. I think that we need to see responsible corporate citizens stepping up in this way. And this is a a very practical uh, stepping up by the big companies in South Africa.
0: The Midday Report.
1: Well, speaking of unemployment and what needs to be done to to fix the economy in South Africa, incredible scenes coming out today of uh, Orlando Stadium in Soweto because thousands and thousands of South Africans, job seekers, are lining up at the Orlando Stadium because they are there as part of the Gauteng government's Nasi Ispani Mass Recruitment Programme. This is also a national programme, but the Gauteng government very much taking ownership of it. Over 1.2 million young people in Gauteng are hoping to get employed through this campaign. Only 8,000 posts are available. Have a listen to the audio of one of these people who are out there today.
7: Um, I'm actually here to collect my appointment letter for the solar technician that I applied on the GRCA website. I'm happy a lot that I got the appointment letter and I'm looking forward to the program.
1: So one lucky guy who got his appointment letter today. Alfred Amashwana, EWN reporter, is at the stadium for us. Uh, Alfred, give us a sense of just how many people have actually come out there today.
8: Good afternoon, Mandy. Well, there are over 40,000 people here at the Orlando Stadium in Soweto this afternoon. And most of them, well, all of them actually are here to collect and sign their appointment letters. Now, 40,000 people, young people, have already been employed through Uh, the province's presidential youth employment initiative. This initiative aims to employ 40,000 people to place them at schools, as as assistants to teachers, as general workers. Uh, at schools, and uh, there's also 6,000 people who are here to sign uh, their employment letters now. They are going to be working as solar panel uh, technicians. We do know that the country is battling a load shading issue at this moment, and the Premier is saying that these 6,000 solar panel technicians are here to ensure that uh, government departments, government buildings are taken off the grid to ease off pressure from the national grid.
1: Uh, Alpha, there's a bit of wind disturbance there. If you can maybe just turn yourself around. I know that you're out in the open. Um, so government says that, that they had 1.2 million young people who applied through this program. 8,000 posts are available. 40,000 people are out there today. What is the Khateng government going to do to try and help all of those hundreds and thousands of other other young people who've applied?
8: What they've tried to do at the moment is that they've tried to partner up with other initiatives uh, that uh, aim to tackle unemployment, like the Presidential Youth Employment Initiative, taken, has taken 40,000 of those people who applied through the Nasi uh, to place them in schools, uh, and the other, the other, the remainder of the 1.2 million who, you know, won't be successful, the premier did say that they do plan on 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 working with the private sector to place them. Uh, whatever job that the private sector can do, they'll try to place them there. They did also mention that the IEC will be hosting or holding campaign uh, uh, um, elections next year, actually. And uh, most of those people will be taken by the IEC. We do know that the IEC does need uh, a a large uh, amount of people to help them through the election. So most of those people will be taken to the IEC. But what the Premier is saying is that they are engaging with the business council, the private sector to ensure that some of these young people are taken by the private sector because surely there's not 1.2 million posts that are available in the the province.
1: Alpha, thank you very much. Alpha Rabashwana, EWN reporter at Orlando Stadium. We were just speaking about the responsibility of the private sector, how uh, South African companies and CEOs are stepping up here to assist, but when you have the kind of unemployment levels that we have in this country, where you have 1.2 million young people in Gauteng applying to the Nasi Ispani campaign, it really does does give us an indication of how severe and how desperate people are. Tens of thousands of people descending on Orlando Stadium today. What do you think of this campaign? What do you think of the way that Panyazul Asufi has been spearheading it?
0: The Midday Report. I mean, I mean, if they complain about that, the video says they edited. We have the sunrise that it all there. They have some cameras there. They might just go there and get the evidence again and show them.
2: Hi, Mindy. Premier Panyaza is just electioneering. Where does the money to employ new people come from? He probably has diverted funds from other service delivery programs. And Treasury keeps on telling us that the wage bill for public service is too high. Bazooka from Pretoria.
1: Hey Bazooka, thank you very much uh, responding there to uh, Houten Government's Nasi Span. I hope I did that better, um, project that is underway uh, today about uh, where exactly the money does come from. Panyaza da sufi has been very outspoken on WhatsApp. Uh, Mandy, I find it hard to believe what the Premier Panyaza da sufi is saying about anything when nothing has been done to those who stole when he was the MEC under whose watch over 500 million rand was stolen for supposed fogging under the draconian COVID-19 disaster. And then a uh, Heidi on uh, Twitter saying, Hi Mandy, I don't care who, why or what as long as people get jobs and earn money, money. If this is how the ANC is politicking, then let it be. At least people get jobs. Thanks for those WhatsApp voice notes and for sending uh, through your comments.
3: The Midday Report with Mandy Wiener on 702 at Cape Talk. Brought to you by NetBank Commercial Banking. See money differently.
1: So speaking about uh, IPED, who of course uh, is looking into this VIP protection video, Uh, we know that IPED has been leading that investigation. Well, the Democratic Alliance wants Parliament to withhold the IPED amendment bill from public participation. It says it might be unconstitutional. The uh, DA raising concerns about the constitutionality of that bill introduced to Parliament in July. It deals with the independence of IPED and the appointment of its executive director as well. This uh, goes all the way back to when Robert McBride uh, was the head of IPID and the suspension, then let's understand what this is all about with the DA spokesperson on police Andrew Whitfield. Andrew, good afternoon to you. Thank you very much for your time today. What is the DA's concerns about this bill and particularly section 4 of the bill?
6: Well,
3: fundamentally our issue is that, and it has been our issue for a very long time, that we don't believe that IPID is independent enough the Constitutional Court agrees in the McBride Judgment and in the Glenister Judgment. And this has been coming for some time. But what your listeners may not be aware of is that Parliament did pass an IPED amendment bill in 2020. It was introduced in the fifth Parliament in 2018 and finally dealt with in 2020. That bill only dealt with the minister's powers to discipline or remove the executive director. So that dealt with Robert McBride's issues as to how he was being disciplined and the minister's powers uh uh, unacceptable powers in our view to interfere in that process um the second element of this is the independence uh, of the appointment process of the executive director that has been an outstanding matter it wasn't dealt with in the bill that was brought to parliament three years ago we now have a new IPED amendment bill, which was gazetted in 2022 for public comment. It went out for public comment in one version, and it has now been brought from cabinet to parliament uh, for parliament to go out on public participation on a bill which has fundamentally changed from the one that was originally gazetted uh, for its initial public comment phase. And this is fundamentally at odds with the procedure around how legislation is dealt with, but also we believe is fundamentally constitution- unconstitutional. You can't present one version of the bill and then bring an entirely different version of the same bill to Parliament.
1: So, so when you speak about that process and, and, and just to try and understand that, so you don't want the bill in its current form to go for public comment because you think it's unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. What is the purpose then of going for public comment? I mean, does, does you asking Parliament to withhold the bill from public participation have any say? Are they going to listen to you?
3: Well, I hope that they will. In fact, the, the, the acting chairperson of the committee has written back to me. I wrote to the chairperson uh, to request that we obtain a legal opinion and that the committee convene urgently to determine whether or not we have the powers uh, to uh, not to proceed. Now, you must remember there is two phases of public participation, one which is done uh, by the department when it publishes the uh, gazetted bill and then the second phase is by parliament. Our concern is that we believe that it is unconstitutional not only because of the processes followed and the fact that certain sections have been changed but that section four of the act which deals with the appointment or the, the, the bill which deals with the appointment of the executive director has fundamentally changed from one which previously sought to create independent panels in order to vet applications to restoring the minister's powers in the current version. And, and we believe that that is at odds with the Constitutional Court judgments and the principle that underpins those judgments. What is more startling, Mandy, and something that hasn't uh, come out uh, uh, at this stage, but the, the Office of the chief, chief State Law Advisor has not certified this bill. Now, you know, the rules of Parliament allow you to deal with legislation without that signature, without that certification. But I cannot recall a single piece of legislation where the Office of the Chief State Law Advisor has sent a bill from Cabinet to Parliament without sign off. Mm. And that is a major, major red flag.
1: Andrew, thank you. Andrew Whitfield, the DA police spokesperson, speaking to us there about the iPad amendment bill. Uh, the DA wants that to be withheld from public participation, saying that it might be unconstitutional.
0: The Midday Report.
1: A chemical storage facility catching fire in Kempton Park earlier today. The Kuraleri Disaster and Emergency Management Services saying the chemical warehouse in Spartan is uh, believed to have been holding hazardous materials. Well, let's find out more now with the emergency services spokesperson in that area, Eric Maloka, who joins us now. Eric, good afternoon to you. Uh, What do we know about this chemical storage facility, this fire, and has it been uh, put under control?
7: The fire is put under control. The fire outbreak was reported uh, last night at around uh, 23 hour 40, and uh, a fleet of uh, six stations uh, responded uh, to the fire with uh, six by major pumpers, uh, two major water tankers, and uh, 22 firefighters. The fire by now, I'm still on scene as we speak right now. The fire is well contained and uh, I can say the company, the factory is fully damaged, is totally damaged. There are some, uh, about two forklifts that they are totally burned down and one, by one of the uh, trucks that was uh, going to mm. collect the, okay. uh, the chemical.
1: Uh, Eric, what do we know about what chemicals were being contained in this uh, storage facility? I understand that some of the neighbors in that area were complaining about a, a strong odor or a smell. Um, so what do you know about that?
7: Yeah, this is the company that deals with the environmental uh, waste chemical. It means they are collecting uh the used material, it is not the 100% pure chemicals, but they are recycling, they're a recycling company. And uh, yes, of course, the, the residents they were complaining about the odour, but um, the distance is very far. That is why they are not so much affected. There was no need, there was ne- not necessary to evacuate them.
1: Okay. Eric, thank you very much. Uh, Eric Maloka, the emergency services uh, spokesperson for Ikuruleni Disaster and Emergency Management Services, uh, giving us an update there that fire has been uh, uh, been placed under control at the chemical storage facility in Spartan in Kempton Park.
0: The Midday Report.
1: Uh, the employment uh, for youth, I'm so
4: excited. I'm actually crying. Uh, thanks to Panyaza. Thanks for uh, you know his thinking and his positive attitude towards helping people. I'm really crying. I, I'm I'm so excited uh, for this youth. I love youth with all my heart. And the fact that they were denied opportunities uh, today, I'm grateful and I'm actually you know celebrating. And I'm thinking uh, a the government, especially Banyaza to have you know uh, initiated this thing. Uh, the posts were were they funded and not uh, being attended to. So we do have budget is shouting and excited and big ups to Panyaza Thank you.
1: Thank you very much uh, for that view. Celebrating the job creation as part of the Nasi Span campaign uh, by the Gauteng government being led by Paniyaz the sufi Earlier on, we played some audio of some of those uh, individuals, the job seekers who are out at Orlando Stadium today. Around 40,000 uh, Gauteng residents are out there trying to get employment. Some of them have been given employment letters uh, to be uh, solar technicians or to be teaching assistants as part of this campaign. Uh, but really what we're is to grow our economy and to to create more jobs in the private sector as well. And significantly, we have seen this uh, pledge being signed by 115 CEOs of the biggest companies in South Africa, uh, backing government, offering to assist with uh, getting the trajectory of the economy in a different direction. Keep sending those WhatsApp voice notes. Let me know what you think. Do you think this is real job creation that we're seeing as part of this campaign?
0: The Midday Report.
1: The Russia-Africa Summit, the second Russia-Africa Summit, beginning in St. Petersburg today. Food security in Africa, that's high on the agenda. Dozens of heads of African states, including President Cyril Ramaphosa, attending there. Uh, Russia's foreign affairs ambassador saying that food production on the continent and support from Russia in agricultural technology will be up for discussion. Of course, there's lots of context here. There's the context of Vladimir Putin not coming to South Africa for the British summit next month. There's also uh, concerns around the grain deal. Uh, Lindsay Dentlinger, EWN reporter following this for us. Lindsay, good afternoon to you. Thank you for your time today. What are we expecting from this uh, this summit and, and what are the key issues to look out for?
5: Good afternoon, Mandy. Well, it's a, a massive summit from what uh, one can tell from afar, the many presentations, exhibitions, uh, and the opening remarks from Vladimir Putin uh, really making very, very big promises uh, to African nations who are present. It seems to be a little bit unclear exactly how many heads of state there. We are getting conflicting reports, uh, but a lot being said about the fact that some of them um, might not have been so keen to travel there, that they are certainly... Um, Fewer uh, heads of state than there were uh, at the first summit in 2019. But so far, Putin, as I said, making big promises to Africa, including, uh, Mandy, uh, promises to deliver up to 50,000 tons of grain to a number of countries, the one closest to us, of course, being Zimbabwe, within the next three to four months, free of shipping charges. And Putin says this is to make up for Russia withdrawing from that grain deal. And, of course, he's gone on to once again accuse the West of lying uh, about the reasons why Russia has withdrawn from that deal and saying the figures actually show that Africa has benefited very little from that deal. But he's promising to make it all up to Africa, not only uh, in the food sector, Mandy, uh, but all kinds of areas of cooperation, uh, which he says, Uh, africa must really build on the collective history uh, of anti-colonialism and he is going to help africa establish this new world order saying africa needs russia and russia needs africa
1: what about this issue of uh, au uh, peace talks what's been discussed there
5: so the chair of the African Union has also, just a short while ago, made some remarks in this opening session uh, saying that um, they really want to continue with this initiative uh, that the African leaders started last month, uh, as you know, on that uh, failed trip that we went on uh, to, to Russia and uh, to Ukraine to um, try to encourage and broker some type of peace talks. And we understand that that will most certainly be something that will be Uh, discussed again on the sidelines African leaders wanting to take forward uh, those talks that they initiated and the African Union chairperson uh, impressing once again on Russia how important it was to stabilize that area to um, bring about peace uh, not only obviously between those nations but the impact that it will continue to have on Africa and the rest of the world. So um, while Putin is doing much wooing of Africa in terms of development and cooperation and trade and all the rest of it. Certainly, for African leaders, bringing peace to that area is high on the agenda uh, on, in their fine line meetings, and Putin is meeting. Uh, with each of the heads of state individually to have these bilateral talks as well, Mandy.
1: Lindsay, thank you. Lindsay Dentinger, EWN reporter, speaking to us there about the second Russia-Africa summit underway in St. Petersburg today. Food security, that grain deal, uh, peace talks, all of that is significant. And don't forget, of course, that our former president, Jacob Zoom is also in Russia uh, somewhere at the moment getting uh, medical treatment. Don't forget, forget about that. And Sir Ramaphosa is there to attend the summit too.
0: The Midday Report Mandy, uh, speaking of Russia,
2: uh, on a lighter note, I think this time around there's good news, because I haven't as as yet heard of the stranded journalist, and I'm just wondering that uh, some of those that were stranded, did they again go? I wonder.
1: Hey, you just heard Lindsay Dentlinger, right? She's gone. She hasn't gone with because I think that uh, everyone's scarred from that experience of sitting on the tarmac in Warsaw for, for two solid days. Um, so I'm glad you can see the silver lining here.
7: The Midday
3: Report with Mandy Wiener is brought to you by Nedbank Commercial Banking on 702 and Cape Talk. NetBank is a licensed FSP and registered credit provider.
1: So the Nepal World Cup is Starting in Cape Town tomorrow, we're hosting The Nepal World Cup and we were Hoping to speak to the uh, President of Nepal South Africa Cecilia Molokwane, unfortunately not answering Her phone, funny thing is uh, she was Also supposed to be on uh, the 702 Breakfast show this morning with Clement Manietzela And didn't answer her phone and uh, that Is indicative of something that is Very concerning because it does seem as though There there are some issues Around our hosting of the Nepal World Cup, uh, there have been concerns Concerns around Vitality pulling out as a sponsor three weeks ago there have also been concerns about the overspending on the budget as well there have been reports about that and I've just seen on Twitter my colleague Cindy Pelluta uh, complaining about the PR coverage of the Netball World Cup saying that it's been shocking um, if I didn't know better I wouldn't know South Africa was hosting this event our reporters have gone to Netball press conferences have been given no access to our national team um, so when Netball SA asked Why we've not covered the World Cup They'll only have themselves to blame Uh, So we have tried to to create some hype here um, And also I've seen some tweets from people Saying that there have been issues Around getting their tickets Apparently you'll have to queue by the gate To get your tickets Uh, By contrast I also saw Jordan Hill Lewis The mayor of Cape Town uh, Putting on social media yesterday The fact that the fan parks in Cape Town Have been opened with great success And lots of hype Uh, So this is an area of concern I was hoping to speak to the president of Nepal South Africa about this. Sadly, not answering her phone today. But I'd love to hear from you if you've had experiences getting your tickets. If you've been able to get your T-shirts. Banyana Banyana is playing in a country uh, you know down under. Um, you know they're in Australia, New Zealand. We seem to be getting lots more access to them. Lots more hype around that. We're hosting a World Cup here in Cape Town. We should be doing everything we can to get that publicity.
0: The midday report.
1: That's a wrap of the day's news. Don't forget you can catch the full Midday Report live on 702 and Cape Talk via our streams on YouTube and our website, 702.co.za and capetalk.co.za. Keep checking in for updates from my colleagues at Eyewitness News. Till the next time, I'm Mandy Wiener.
0: The Midday Report.